0: Let's turn on our Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 3, as we continue our journey through Esther together. Uh, last time we saw that King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, who at that time was reigning over the Medo-Persian Empire, again this time historically, we find ourselves really somewhere uh, around the occasion uh, after the first group of Jews had gone back under Cyrus's permission to return. Of course, we remember as a few small remnants went back to Jerusalem to restore and rebuild the temple that the majority of the Jewish people still in the land of captivity, which was originally Babylon, had then been absorbed by the Medo-Persian Empire as they then conquered Babylon. And the majority of those Jews still being under the rulership in the place of captivity scattered around the provinces of what would be the... Medo-Persian Empire, and the book of Esther directly dealing with those Jews who chose to remain in the land of captivity and did not go back to the land of Israel and to Jerusalem to restore and rebuild the temple when a small remnant did go back. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah covered that. We talked about that, but... At this time, Ahasuerus, we're told, was reigning, and it was in those days that he, seeking to make some military advancements to try and conquer the Greeks who were a rising power at that time. In the midst of a six-month long, it seems... Uh, perhaps uh, military strategy discussion, bringing in his different leaders and rulers, his officials and servants from the different powers of Persia, the nobles and princes around the provinces, to spend time with them in the midst of then a week-long celebration as well of just a, really was more nothing less than just a, a wild, drunken party. In the midst of that Requested, remember his wife, uh, Queen Vashti, to come in because she was a very beautiful woman and to parade her beauty, kind of wanted to put his beautiful wife on display before all of his friends and the fellow officials in the midst of their drunkenness. She refused. And of course, the outcome of that, the pride, the arrogance of the men who were involved became so upset that Queen Vashti had not just ignored her husband's request but more than that had denied the request of the king in this strong somewhat you might say overreaction they completely deposed her as the queen removed her from her position as the queen and encouraged the king to basically seek for himself another queen in the place of Vashti and then after a series of about what seems like at least a good year or more of sort of almost a a, a beauty preparation, a beauty pageant-type process. Different young maidens and virgins were brought in. They were given beauty treatments, and the king took his time spending some time with each of these different women, ultimately, to select his new queen. And lo and behold, this brings us to another major player in our story. This is how, ultimately, Esther comes into play. We saw that Esther was a Jewish woman who had been raised... ...by her elder uncle or elder cousin, I guess I should say, better. Uh, Her older cousin took her in when her parents had died, and he had been raising her and taking care of her like a daughter, and she ends up being selected uh, as the next queen for the king and finds herself now married to the king of Persia and her uncle, I keep saying her uncle, her her, uh, elder cousin, much like an uncle because of the great age gap, told her not to disclose her ancestry or to disclose at this time her ethnicity, the fact that she was a Jewish, but to not share that information if she was not asked. But now we find Esther in this role of being the next queen. She's in this prominent position. Mordecai, who had raised her and was someone who's seeming to rise in prominence as well, though a Jew also. We were told at the end of chapter 2 that in those days Mordecai sat within the king's gate where a lot of the different king's officials would dispute and debate different things, and he becomes aware of a plot of assassination against the king. He discloses the tip-off, if you would, of this information to Esther, who then goes and shares this with her husband, the king, and the king's life is spared, and a record of what Mordecai had done was written down but nothing was done to reward him so at this time we now have three of our main players we now come into introduction of the fourth main player in the book of Esther we'll see which is this man Haman so with that backdrop we pick up in chapter three where we are told after these things that after the events of king Ahasuerus selecting his new queen which was Esther after Mordecai finding out and intervening to protect the king from being assassinated through Esther, bringing word to him. It's after these things that King Ahasuerus, for whatever reason, we're not told. It says he promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Now, that could be an indication that he's connected to King Agag going all the way back to the time of Samuel, where Saul, remember, uh, disobediently did not put King Agag to death, and as a result of that, uh, it could be that his descendants are still around, and all these many, many years, if you would, uh, somewhat centuries later, now we have a problematic individual who descended from the disobedience of Saul, not putting King Agag to death the way that he should have, but allowing him to live, though he was an enemy of the Lord's people. So again, sometimes the far-reaching consequences of one person's bad decision can reach down and have impacts in ways beyond what we could even think, just one bad decision. Now we, we can't be dogmatic in regards to that. We do know that King Ahag, Agag and the Amalekites were a type of the flesh, and so as we see the, the horrific things that ultimately Haman will do as a picture of the enemy of God's people, as even the flesh is the enemy of our life as god's people and seeks to bring harm to us and hinder god's plans uh, it could very well be that this is in some ways a reminder of that we we can't be certain but some like to take note that it says he was an agagite but he's promoted this man Haman given a position it says verse 1 he was advanced And he was set in his seat above all the princes who were with him. So the idea is he kind of almost becomes like second in command. He's exalted above all the other princes. He is now the second in charge under the ruler himself, King Ahasuerus, second in command, a very prominent position politically. And verse 2 says, and all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. So it seems there was some direct edict or a instruction given that Haman was in such a prominent position now, second only to the king himself, that he was to be paid tremendous respect, that they were to pay homage to him, that people were to bow down to him in reverence for who he was in his position. However, verse 2, here's where the problems begin. It says, but Mordecai, though others would bow down and pay homage to Haman, Mordecai would not bow down nor pay homage. So, for whatever reason, and we don't have direct revelation in the scriptures Old Mordecai, this older man, who does seem to be an older godly man, I I firmly believe that. Some want to try and challenge that, and even challenge that Mordecai may even have been wrong here in his stubbornness wanting to bow down. For whatever reason, for conviction's sake, Mordecai, though he saw others bowing down to this man and paying homage, it says to him, Mordecai refused to do that. He was uh, strong in his conviction, and, and in his mind, it was just wrong to do this. And he would not show this special respect. He would not bow down or pay homage. Now, we see Abraham bowing down to people. We see others in the scripture bowing down as as a way of showing respect. Uh, And so we want to try and find uh, some balance in this. Of course, in the book of Daniel in chapter 3, when uh, the friends of Daniel are told to basically bow down and pay homage to the statue and to worship the statue, that was clearly an indication that they were to worship something. We don't necessarily know for certain that this is what was going on, that the people were worshiping Haman, but something in Mordecai's spirit just gave him a strong conviction that he was not going to show this undue uh, you know, uh, superiority that was being given to Haman, and he just couldn't do that in his heart. He felt that it was something that was improper, and it just went against his personal convictions to do that. Uh, so because of that, he's kind of stubborn here. He won't bow down. He won't pay homage to him and exalt him as somebody that's that superior or special, despite the position that he held. And verse 3 says, And then the king's servants, who were within the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? So they say, look, even the king himself has given this as a command. It's almost as if it's a law. This was something the king has given as an edict that people were to bow down and pay homage to his second-in-charge official, this man Haman. So they say, what are you doing? Why are you being stubborn and why won't you comply like everyone else does? And it happened, verse 4, that when they spoke to him daily, so this kept happening day after day after day, he would just not bow down, though everyone else around him would, that he would not listen to them, it says, verse 4. And that they told to Haman, to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. So every day they keep telling him, what's the matter with you, man? Everyone else is doing it. Why won't you bow down? You know, sometimes that's a, a, a real difficulty. Sometimes the temptation for us is to just do what everyone else in culture is doing do what everyone else in society is doing, and sometimes it's a real shocker if for some reason a person says, I don't care what everyone else in the society is doing, I'm not going to bow down to that situation. Uh, I'm not going to behave in that way, I'm not going to conform to the patterns of everyone else in the world around me, I have a conviction about this and and I'm not going to violate my personal conviction, whether it's for spiritual reasons, moral reasons. And and so here, it says that day after day, though they tried to persuade him, Mordecai would not do it and they wanted to see if his words were going to stand. Was he going to keep being stubborn? Was he going to keep being persistent? Or was he at some point going to kind of cave in and do what everyone else was doing after just a little bit of pressure was put upon him? And it says that, uh, as they asked him day by day whether his words would stand, that Mordecai had told them in connection to this that he was a Jew. So again, this is about the best of explanation that we get, that in some way Mordecai conveyed the reasoning in his heart and in his mind behind his personal conviction of why he would not bow down to Haman and why he would not pay homage to Haman, though everyone else would, is in some way connected to the fact that he was a Jew. So he is now disclosed, To the people at this point, his own ancestry, his own ethnicity as a Jewish person, though remember he had told Esther not to disclose that, and she had not yet out of obedience to him, he has now disclosed this and some way said, this is the basis for why I cannot do that. Because I am a Jew, in some way that was his reasoning. So again, this could very well be that he felt like that this violated his conscience before God. That he felt like, look, I'm not bowing down to anyone but the Lord. I won't bow down to anyone but Yahweh, Jehovah. He's the only one that I'll bow down to and the only one that I'm going to pay homage to. And I won't give that type of reverence and undue glory to any man. So it very well could be that that was his reasoning. All we're told, however, here is he told them it was because he was a Jew. Now that's going to, of course, bring about the animosity not only towards Mordecai, but we'll see ultimately towards the entire people group, of the Jews as well at this point going forward. Verse 5 goes on to say, Now when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, he Haman, it says, was filled with wrath. So every day as Haman walks through, you have to imagine everyone's bowing down to him. Oh, Haman. Everyone's paying homage to him. Oh, Haman. And, and he's become very accustomed to this. To everyone, giving him this special attention and exalting him as important and giving him all this recognition, bowing down and paying homage to him as this superior, important man in his political status. But it says that every day as he walked by Mordecai, no doubt he'd wonder, okay, is he going to do it today? And every day, Mordecai wouldn't bow. Every day, Mordecai would not give homage. He would not comply with what everyone else was doing. And day after day, this is grating on Haman. It's bothering him. It's angering him more and more. His pride is being offended. What is wrong with this man? Why won't he give me the respect that everyone else will? And you can imagine how this is going on. It says literally he became filled with wrath. He was incensed. And this became just his anger. This one man, what is wrong with him? Why he will he not bow down and pay homage to me? So he is filled with wrath. And verse 6 says, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. For they had told him, that is Haman, the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So look at this. Haman has one bad experience with one guy, and he is so angered. He is so offended His pride is so stirred because of the treatment that he experiences that he does not agree with from this one man Mordecai and because Mordecai won't comply and bow down to him, Haman becomes so angry and so arrogant he ends up transferring his hatred for this one man to hatred to all of the people of the same ethnicity and nationality and race as Mordecai himself. He takes this hatred for one person and his bad experience with one person and he transfers it to all the people that are just like him and he says you know what i just don't hate mordecai i hate all jews now and i despise all jews now i mean this is nothing other than just what has been around from the earliest days of sin in the garden of eden of just Bigotry and uh, what we call, you know, racism in some ways to a degree. That he has a hatred towards the Jews. This is early on again, uh, the imagery of anti-Semitism, just hatred towards the Jewish people, and it all stemmed just from a bad experience between Haman and just one Jewish man who would not bow down to him and pay him homage. So it literally says there, filled with wrath, but that was not enough just to do something to harm Mordecai. It says at this point, Haman sought now to destroy all the Jews. He literally wanted to annihilate the entire Jewish race. He literally, we're going to see, wants to plan the execution of all of the Jewish people because he now hates all Jewish people because he's transferred one bad experience with a Jew towards the entire ethnicity and, and race of the Jewish people. So Haman now is filled with anger he wants to destroy all the Jews in the entire kingdom so we see how he goes about it beginning in verse 7. it says in the first month which is in the month of Nisan in the 20th or excuse me the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus now that tells us a few years have passed since Esther became his queen. Uh, That's kind of where we're at. She's been his queen now for a few years. So it's in the first month of this twelfth year of King Ahasuerus that they cast per, that is the idea is a casting of lots, like throwing of dice, uh, to kind of see what would come up as an answer. They cast the lot before Haman to determine now the day and the month until on the twelfth month, it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So what they do is... They come up with a way to determine now, okay, what is the right day according to the gods and the lot that's going to fall, what, when all the stars, if you would, will line up. What is the right day now, the right day of the right month that we should execute this entire race of people, that we should execute all of the Jewish people? And so they cast lots to try and let this be term- determined uh, of what would be the right time to go about this process to carry out this plan to kill all of the Jews. And it says that they did this on the first month, and look what it says, the lot fell out on the 12th month. That 12, on the 12th month would be the right day to do that. So, again, the Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs uh, that man casts the lot, but its every decision is from the Lord. The idea is that God always sovereignly overrules, even in the affairs and the activities of man, to orchestrate what he wants in accordance with his will and purpose and here Haman says on the first month okay let's throw the dice and he's probably thinking I I hope by the second month that that's when the month and the day is chosen according to the casting of these lots and that's when we're going to do this but literally it falls in the last month of the year so it leaves an 11 month gap Uh, The idea is, you know, again, God just superintending here, God allowing there to be the maximum amount of time possible to orchestrate his plan as an interim to do what's in the best interest of his people. Uh, Again, it could have fell on the first month, the third month, the fifth month, the seventh month. God intervenes and lets them dice, if you would, drop down, though God's not in the process itself. God lets that lot fall purposely, it says, on the twelfth month. Uh, again, God has his ways of doing what's in the best interest of his people. And here, again, he just intervenes in the situation, and this is what we've been talking about in the book of Esther. We see God working behind the scenes. And God could not have given a better situation and allowed there to be an 11-month gap between the decision to kill the people and actually the, the the month and the day in which it would be carried out. He leaves that long gap of time. So verse 8 says, Then Haman said to king Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among, it says, in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. In other words, trying to imply there are rebellious people because the Jewish people kept different laws and customs because they honored Yahweh God, because they had different moral ideas about things, and their perspectives were not the same as the people of Persia. He's trying to paint them out with this broad brush now as if they're evil people, because they're different than others in society, that somehow something about them is corrupted, that something about them is inferior or wrong. And again, this is often the the attitudes that come when people have bigotry and racism and these just unhealthy things that can exist in people's hearts. He, he hates the Jewish people, so now he's trying to paint them out as people who uh, kind of almost are deserving of death here. This is kind of the idea. Is he's presenting his case to the king now. He says, look, they're different from all the other people. And king, they don't keep your laws, he says. Therefore, notice, it is not fitting, he says, verse 8, for the king to let them remain. They don't even deserve to live. Because of who they are and what they're like, they don't even deserve to remain among our kingdom. They need to be put to death, is what he's saying. Verse 9 If it pleases the king, therefore he says, let a decree be written that they be, notice, destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do all the work to bring into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So as the plan is presented here, it says to the king, he gives an indication of the tremendous wealth that he had, Haman does. As it says here, he was willing out of his own pocket to pay out 10,000 talents of silver. Now that's somewhere probably around 750,000 pounds of silver, an estimate in current currency, probably somewhere in the millions of dollars in our common currency, and he is willing out of pocket uh, to pay that kind of sum to basically finance the execution of the Jewish people because of his hatred of them. It says in verse 10, So the king took that signet ring out of his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So the king, not really looking into this, willing to consent to the plan of Haman, not really taking the time and stewardship to think the process through himself, just trusting his second-in-command, gives his signet ring, which was a very strong indication, of course, of uh, the ability to exercise the authority of the king to carry out this process, And so now, really, this is going to be a sealed decree under the Persian king, which cannot be altered once it's made. As we've talked about last time, when a king of Persia made a decree, it was unalterable. The the king himself couldn't even alter that. And now this enemy of the Jews in his anti-Semitic attitude, is going to be able to try and carry out the execution of all the Jewish people. Now, again, certainly this stems from the hatred of just one man here, but nonetheless, we recognize the, the diabolical source behind the whole thing, because uh, Haman himself, being inspired not just to kill a particular group of people that he has hatred towards, Uh, but wanting to destroy the Jewish people who are God's chosen nation and the line through which the Messiah, Jesus Christ, could come. So again, we we recognize the spiritual source behind this anti-Semitism, this hatred towards the Jewish people uh, is certainly devilish in its origin because the devil wants to destroy God's plan, and if all of the Jews were destroyed, it would be the destruction of the Messianic line. So at this point now... Haman is getting success. He's gaining momentum to be able to destroy all the Jewish people. And verse 11 tells him, uh, tells us, And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you. Do with them as seems good to you. And then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, the governors, whoever, each province, and the officials of all the people, in every province according to all its script, and to every people in their language. And in the name of king Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. So it is now a determined thing, uh, this day of execution for the Jewish people. The king has given his approval Haman now has authority to carry this out, and this is an unalterable decree which must be brought forth as the result of the determination of the king. So verse 13 tells us that the letters then of this decree were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, "...in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions." So, the decree is now written that on a particular month and day of the year, it says, on one day, they were to carry out this execution, it says, "...to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all of the Jews." Young and old, children and women alike, there was to be the sparing of absolutely no one who was of Jewish nationality. Now, again, we we see this, and we unfortunately have seen this kind of thing throughout history beyond this case here in the days of Hitler and Stalin and others. And we we recognize that there has always been this underlying spirit of anti-Semitism that throughout history— has kind of permeated the world, and again, as I said a moment ago, because the origin of it is not just the ignorance of man, uh, which would be the source, of course, of any type of bigotry or racism or hating a particular ethnicity, but more, this is a, a deeply spiritual origin because the devil himself is the one, even Jesus said, who wants to rob, kill, and destroy people generally, and particularly to destroy the Jewish people through which God's plans ultimately are unfolding through. And so, again, what we see in this is the devil manipulating the mindset of one man, the hatred of one man, to basically have a hatred towards the people of the Jews generally to try and destroy God's plan so that his purposes won't unfold. And the devil always works to try and thwart God's plans. So verse 14 says, A copy of the document was then to be issued as a law in every province— being published for all the people, that they should be ready for that day. And the couriers then went out and hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was now perplexed. So you can imagine, as this decree is decided now, a written document of it, is put into play it's now circulated it says all throughout the province being published among all the people and we can imagine what it must have been like not only for the Medo-Persian people to read that all of the Jewish people all the people of this particular nationality were all young and old women and children to be put to death on this set day but imagine being a Jew and actually finding out about the circulation of this document that a decree has now been decided and that all of the people are going to be put to death on a particular day. Well, we're told in chapter 4, verse 1, that when Mordecai then learned all that had happened, it says he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city And cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So we see the very strong response of Mordecai, and no doubt, uh, as he's wearing the sackcloth and tearing his clothes. Again, these were very expressive ways to display grief and and, and being perplexed. The Jewish people would often do this. So as Mordecai is now doing this, as he goes out in the midst of the people and he's crying out with a loud and bitter cry, we can only imagine what's going through his heart as he's thinking for himself, here I took a stand to do what I thought was good and right in the sight of the Lord. I personally chose to not bow down to Haman. I made a decision. I am not going to do that. I don't feel it's something God wants me to do. But yet now Mordecai recognizing my personal decision to take that stand, to do what I thought was right in the sight of the Lord, has basically now triggered the animosity of this man with such great power, Haman, to have a hatred towards all of the people and basically to arrange the execution of all of my people as the result of his animosity towards me. So uh, I can only imagine what's going through Mordecai's heart and his mind at this point as he feels like, here I stood for God, and now I've caused this. Now I'm directly responsible for the welfare of all of my people because I've chosen to make this stand. And you know, sometimes that's a, a tough place to be where you take a right stand for something and you realize your choice to make a stand perhaps for what you feel is right before the Lord then has an impact upon other people. And, and here Mordecai is kind of facing that reality. I've caused this. I mean, imagine the weight of what he's feeling as an individual because of doing what he thought was obedient before God and now he's put in jeopardy all of the Jewish people, and there's been a death plot arranged for a certain day for the entire nation. Verse 2, it says, as he's crying out, he then went out as far as the front as the king's gate, For no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. That is, you weren't allowed to come into that area anywhere near the king to show any disappointment or uh, any sadness. The king didn't like any of that around because that was a reflection he felt like upon the rulership that he was executing. So nobody was allowed to be sad or upset in the king's presence. That would be deemed an offense, and Mordecai knows this. So it says in verse 3, And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived there was a great mourning among all the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes so as word of this spreads around and the people find out we are scheduled to be put to death and have no power to change this to alter this and our people are scheduled to be put to death It says it causes a tremendous outbreak of fasting and weeping and wailing among the people. Now, again, in verses 1 through 3 here, we have no reference at all directly to prayer. Uh, That being said, I, I find it very hard, though it's not directly referenced, to think that such tremendous events would be happening, and such desperate situations would be going on, and that in the midst of the fasting and the weeping and the wailing, that people are not praying and crying out to God, what do we do? God, spare us. God, help us. I'm I'm willing to, though it's somewhat kept invisible in the book of Esther, these references to God, to prayer, to uh, the law of God, and these things, to believe that God is always working behind the scenes and that these people are no doubt crying out to God in the midst of their weeping and their fasting as well. And again, many times in Scripture we see fasting and prayer tied together, so I don't think it's a big stretch in the midst of what's going on that the people would be begging God for intervention at this point now. I mean, they are under the domineering authority of a Of a wicked man who has rulership over them, and they have no power in their in their own humanity, no ability or strength or resource to stop this situation, the only place for them to turn is to God himself to to intervene with his higher authority as the king of kings. and so as they 're mourning and grieving over all these things on a, on a wide scale level now, many people it says verse four, so esther 's maids. And the eunuchs came and told her. So they now come back into the palace and she now gets report what's going on. It says, and the queen was deeply distressed. So she gets word that her people, Mordecai and the Jewish people are weeping and wailing in the streets and she's distressed. She's concerned over them. So verse four says, she then sent out garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him. But he would not accept them. So Esther is trying to, again, take away his humiliation. Why is my uh, father figure doing this? And, and she doesn't want him to be embarrassed. She has powers, the queen, so she sends out servants. Please tell him to put on these better garments. Tell him to take off the sackcloth and to put things on. But, but Mordecai, so deeply moved, refused to take the more comfortable clothing. He remained in the sackcloth because he was grief-stricken over all this. So verse 5 says, Esther then called Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So keep in mind, at this point, Esther is somewhat... Not aware, it seems, of exactly what this edict is that has gone forth, she perhaps in some ways is kept sheltered from this. Maybe again because this was something that was kind of more of Haman's plot and plan and he just got approval from the king and carried it out. And Esther somewhat living in the palace life, she somewhat secluded and kept from the affairs that are happening out among the empire. And so she's not fully aware what exactly is going on. Why is Mordecai and all of my people so grieved and perplexed? Why are they fasting and weeping in the streets? So she now sends out her servant, Hatak, and says, you need to find out for me what is going on. Why is this happening? So verse 6 says, Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai then told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also even gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction as a people, which was given at Shushan that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her. That is, give her the document so she has evidence of this, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for notice her people. Again, reminding her, these are her own people who this death plot has been determined against. So Hatak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So at this point now, Hatak now comes back with an explanation from Mordecai of exactly what has been determined. She is now brought into the know. She's now given revelation and awareness of this evil, destructive plot that has been determined to bring about the destruction of all of the Jewish people. And also, she is now given another exhortation from her father figure that she should now utilize her position, it says, to go into the king, who was her husband, to make supplication, the idea is to, to plead with him, to ask, to plead with his role from the throne that he would give mercy and that he would reverse this decision and that somehow he would do something in his authority as the king to spare her people, to spare the Jewish people. And he reminds Esther very clearly that she would plead, it says, before the king and her husband, for her people the idea is esther up until this time i have told you don't indicate that you're a jew don't make there be any awareness of your ethnicity but now's the time in other words before it wasn't the time but now is the time now is the time esther to say as his wife look this plot to execute all of the Jewish people is not going to just harm my people, it's going to actually put me to death as well as your wife because I'm of Jewish ethnicity. So he says, these are your people, plead, plead with the one in authority for your people. And I think it's just a, a good reminder you know, for, for us to recognize to some degree that there is a time and a place where one of the best things we can do is to plead on behalf of those that we are connected to, that uh, that we have a direct connection to, not just on an ethnic level, but even more than that, on perhaps a familial level, an even closer level, spiritual level. These were God's chosen people there in the land, and Esther is in a position where she is able to plead with a throne that has tremendous power and great authority behind it. And in the same way, Esther had that opportunity, you and I have a a greater throne. We can go to the very throne of Almighty God himself, not the throne of someone who's a a ruler of an empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. We can go to the very throne of God, and we can plead with the king of kings, the one who's in greatest authority, to intervene in situations where maybe something greatly needs to change that's very, very important, or that's threatening the welfare of those that we love and that are very important to us. So he says, Esther, now's the time. Please go in and plead with your husband. So verse 10 tells us that Esther then spoke to Hatak to bring message back to Mordecai. Listen, I, I hear what he said, but bring back this word to him. Verse 11, she basically says, that's not as simple as it sounds. It says that she said, bring back word to him, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's word. So Esther sends back word respectfully, but honestly to say, look, you're not understanding the protocol of the throne of the king of Medo-Persia. She says the way that it works is unless you are given direct access into the presence of the king, it does not matter who you are how special you are, how much the king may even have favor towards you if you violate the protocol of access into the king's presence. She says there's nothing other than a death sentence. She reminds him, look, it is the king's law of the inner court. If you've not been called, and if the golden scepter, and that was the way they would indicate that, if the golden scepter has not been extended to you, if you enter into his presence, you will instantly be put to death because that was the law and the protocol because of his great authority that he had. Now, uh, she says, what you're asking me to do, whether he's my husband or not, is not something I can do. I can't just casually enter into his presence and plead for him to do this on behalf of our people. Now, I I look at that and it reminds me in some ways how we should recognize that no human being has the freedom to just casually enter into the presence of, of the king of kings, God himself. God is too holy and too awesome For any of us to be able to have direct access to him, it's somewhat naive of us to think that we can just kind of barge into God's presence and that it's okay to do that. Uh, No one has access directly into the presence of God in their own condition. It doesn't matter who you think you are or how maybe good you may think of yourself. Again, Esther's able to say here, look, even though I'm his wife, I'm the actual wife of the king, I can't even have access into his presence, and so uh, as she understood that, it's important for us in humility to recognize that in our sinfulness and in our unworthiness, we can't go directly into the presence of God. Access has to be made available to us, and that access, gloriously enough, can be made available, it's made available to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's through what Jesus offers to us that we have opportunity to be able to have access to to the very throne of the greatest king, to the throne of God, but that is the only way that we have that access. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, through whom, Romans 5.2, through whom, that's through Jesus, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, it's Jesus who gives us this access to the throne of God that we can come before holy and awesome God in our utter sinfulness and unworthiness because the blood of Christ makes us righteous and gives us a standing where through Jesus we can have access into the presence of God to seek him at his throne to be able to beseech him for help that we need from time to time. The Bible tells us as well in the the book of Hebrews, uh, much the same, kind of expounding upon this same idea for us. It tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, for we do not have a high priest regarding Jesus who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And then it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, uh, again, this idea here where we are able to come directly to the Lord, it says we can come now to this awesome throne. It's a throne of grace available for us to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But the reason we can come is not because we have a right to have access to God, but it's because we've been granted access by the finished work of Christ and our trust in that, and it's through our relationship with Christ that that, if you would, golden scepter of favor, which is the grace of God, makes God give us access to come directly to his throne. So here Esther is saying to her father figure, Mordecai, look, you don't understand. I understand what you're asking. I cannot just go into his presence. I risk literally being put to death to do that. But Mordecai, verse 13, then sends back response, saying, Mordecai told to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. So Mordecai says, Look, what I do understand is this. When a law is decreed in the Medo-Persian Empire, not even the king himself who's decreed it has the right, according to law, to alter one of his decrees. So as a Jew, he says... Don't think that you will be spared just because you're his wife. You will have to be put to death and executed as well. So he says, don't think that if you refrain from making an effort to try to ask and to intercede, that you're going to escape the king's palace. He says, any more than all the rest of the Jewish people, you'll be put to death as well. And then, of course, this fitting exhortation, he says, verse 14, for if you remain completely silent at this time... Relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews from another place. In other words, God's hands aren't tied. He can bring deliverance from any way. But, however, verse 14, you and your father's house will still perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. So Mordecai sends back a word of exhortation to basically say to Esther, Look, if you choose to not act in this situation and to intervene and plead with your husband, the king, to spare the Jewish people, for him to intervene with his authority and to do something to change the circumstances, he says, if you remain completely silent, verse 14, he says, understand, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. And again, I I like the perspective there, the idea of being if you don't want to be involved in this process, don't think God's eggs are all in one basket, and if you choose to remain silent and do nothing for whatever reasons, fear or whatever else may prohibit you, he says, relief and deliverance will arise from somewhere else. God's hands are not tied. God can always accomplish still what God wants to accomplish, and we're thankful for that, that he's not dependent on any one of us as individuals, that God can work through anyone and through any means. He is not limited. And so he says, look, uh, relief and deliverance will come. God, I think in some ways, uh, Mordecai remembered, God has made covenant promises to the Jewish people, and God will not let his covenant promises fail. The Messiah needed to come through the Jews. And perhaps Mordecai reflected on that. Look, I don't know how God will do it, but he says relief and deliverance will somehow come But then he says to him, yet who knows, how do you know, Esther, whether you specifically have come there to the kingdom for such a time as this? He's saying, Esther, perhaps the whole reason why you have gone through everything that you have in your life that from from your parents dying early to me taking you in to raise you and to take care of you as a as an orphan daughter and to kind of adopt you as my own and to give you guidance and wisdom and to raise you in the way that I did as a godly woman and to help you have the moral bearings that you did and even the very fact of of queen vashti being deposed and sovereignly god overruling in all those things and then ultimately the beauty pageant happening and you of all the women in the land being chosen as the king he's saying esther how do you know whether or not god behind the scenes in his providence looking down through the years in the ages knowing this situation would arise where Haman would formulate this plot and his hatred to want to exterminate all of the Jewish people and these horrific events to happen. He's saying, how do you know whether or not God allowed all of these pieces to unfold so that you would be the right person in the right place at the exact right time to step into this situation and that God's brought you to the very spot you are for such a time as this, that you would be there and able to step into the story and to let God use you to bring about his plan of deliverance. And he's saying, Esther, perhaps everything in your life has prepared you for this very day. Maybe everything that you've gone through, your experiences, and all the events that have been happening circumstantially, maybe God has been moving all these pieces around on the chessboard and his wisdom and his sovereignty to allow you to be able to make yourself available to him that God might use you in an incredible way to accomplish something that is absolutely critical to bring about the purposes and the plans of God and to help multitudes and multitudes of people. He says, how do you know whether God has you right where he has you For such a time as this. And you know, I think that's a a good reminder for all of us because there are times I think where God brings us to a place where we find ourselves in a situation and circumstances kind of present themselves, and where the Lord somewhat prompts us to make us think about this very reality for our lives. How do we know whether or not everything that's happened in our life in our past, the years that we went through different things, our experiences, and all the events of our life bringing us to right where we are at this point in time, at this moment in history, connected to the people that we are, in the place where we are, that God's put us in that place, in this position for the exact timing that we are so that we could step into God's story and let God use the availability of our life. And, and we don't want to miss those windows of opportunity. Sometimes God says to us, how do you know whether you've not been positioned where you are for such a time as this? And are you going to let the opportunity pass you by, God says. And again, it's a privilege. It's an opportunity to step in to let our life be useful to the Lord. God's not fully dependent upon us. Even as Mordecai says here, look, if you remain silent and you do nothing— Uh, the opportunity will pass you over, but God will still work. God will still bring about what he wants. He'll just bring it about through another means and through another way. But he says, how do you know whether or not God wants to work through you? Whether God for such a time as this has brought you to this spot that he might use your life and you have an opportunity to step in and make yourself available and say, here am I, Lord, and, and let God use you, or you have the opportunity to let that pass you by. So Esther's presented with this situation, and it's at that point as she's kind of stirred, recognizing, oh my goodness, maybe this is true, maybe I've been prepared and positioned right where I am at this point in my life for such a time as this to do this, that she then, in faith, is willing to step into the story obediently, and she tells uh, the servant to go out and tell Mordecai, look, get together all the Jews use fast and pray for me for the next three days straight, fast and pray that I'd have courage to carry this through, that my husband and the king's heart would be receptive, and you intercede and you pray. And she says, verse 16, I will go into the king, which is against the law, and she says, quite in faith, and if I perish, I perish. Now, I don't think that's a fatalistic attitude as much as it is. I am willing to obey the Lord whatever the cost and she says and and if i lose my life in the midst of this if somehow having to be obedient to god and do what is right costs me personal loss then i am willing to entrust my life to god and to do what i believe is right and to leave the risk and the consequences to the lord and and here she's saying look i know there's a cost to obedience so if i perish i perish I am willing to step out and obey God in faith and do what is right and trust God with whatever the outcome is in that. And you know, sometimes the Lord, I think, brings us to that place where we have to realize here is an opportunity for us to step into something, to do something, to obey the Lord in some way, but we realize it's risky because sometimes obeying the Lord carries risk with it. And there's personal risks, maybe on different levels of what the risk may be, But there comes a place where we have to choose, am I going to let fear or faith dominate my decision? And am I willing to step forward in faith and to take the risk and and to be willing to bear the cost personally? Or am I going to shrink back in fear and unbelief and and, and take the route of self-preservation? and try and protect myself and, and not risk any personal inconvenience or personal uh, kind of harm or loss in my life. You know, Jesus talks about whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And, and, and I think ultimately we have to come to that decision. And here, so beautiful, the example is Esther, where she's willing to step into the situation, you pray, I will do this, I'll step in and go and speak to my husband and intercede. And she says, if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai says, went his way and did according to Esther, commanded him. So they now begin to pray. I'm sure Esther is praying and trying to prepare her heart the next few days. And as you read ahead in chapter 5, we'll see what unfolds as Esther takes this great step of faith and obedience.